This episode of the Memory Palace is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. A word of warning, this episode contains reference to suicide. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Before she was a citation, a legal precedent, or a key turning point in the biography of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the station of that cross, Sally Reed was asleep when the phone rang. She was a mother of a teenage son. He was supposed to be sleeping in his dad's place, though she didn't like it when he did. There were reasons they'd split up. And the phone rang in the middle of the night. And it was the police. And whatever she had been afraid of, about a call in the middle of the night, as she was, as we are, it was worse. Her boy was found dead in the basement of her ex-husband's house from a gunshot wound. It was ruled to be self-inflicted, though it seems she never quite believed it. There were so many guns in that house. Something bad was bound to happen. She had worried so much. And then the phone rang. Late winter, 1967. Boise, Idaho. Her son's name was Richard, though she called him Skip. He had been abandoned at birth. And Sally, who had had two miscarriages and wanted dearly to be a mother, adopted him when he was three days old. Her husband Cecil, she would later say, was bitterly opposed to adopting. But Sally knew that she would love this boy like her own. Her own parents had done her the same grace when they brought her home from a Nebraska orphanage when she was small. Cecil left the family when Skip was small. And then Sally Reed was a single mother, and according to some accounts, a survivor of an abusive marriage. She supported she and her boy. She cooked and ironed and babysat, took people with disabilities into their home and cared for them while their families were at work. She made enough money to get her son music lessons. They both loved music, and he took to it. He composed his own music. By the time he was in high school, his mom still working out of their home. His father living across town with his new wife and her two adult sons. Skip was in the school band and in a rock band in his garage. They would play parties and sock hops. He didn't like staying in his dad's. He never wanted to. His mother said that in an interview years later. But she always told him that he had to. His father had visiting rights. The law was the law. Skip was set to stay there for a whole week in the end of March of 67. A few days into the stay, he called his mom and said he wanted to come home. She soothed them and said they had to follow the rules and said it would be fine. And then the phone rang. Richard Skip Reed was 16 when he died. And as such, he didn't have a will. He had a turntable and some records. Clothes still hanging in the closet. A clarinet. In a savings account in which he had managed to sock away $495 for college by mowing lawns in their neighborhood. One day, some unremembered number of days after she buried her son, Sally Reed went to the bank to try to figure out what she was supposed to do about the money in her son's account. The $495 he'd saved lawn by lawn, summer Saturday by summer Saturday. The teller told her there wasn't any money. It had been withdrawn by her ex-husband. She was angry. It wasn't about the money, she would say. It was the principle of the thing. Her husband had abandoned them. Her husband had turned his back on them. Her husband had all those guns. Her husband 
was the principal. She called and confronted him. And who can say now what it took to do that? And her ex-husband said it was settled. He had called the probate court and had himself named as the executor of Skip's estate. So she filed her own request, that she should be the executor. But the court said no. Didn't matter that she was his mother, that she was his primary guardian, that she knew him best, that his father had been absent, and far worse when he wasn't. The operative thing here, the only thing that mattered, was her gender. A law more than a hundred years old, written by men long dead in a time when Boise was a frontier town in the incorporated Idaho Territory, held that when a man and woman were equally qualified to be the executor of an estate, the man must be chosen. Sally Reed took her case all the way to the Supreme Court, which is a thing that we say, but never quite says enough. Sally Reed felt the law wasn't fair. She would say she wasn't a feminist, but she was raised to believe that a woman had just as much right as a man. She said, looking back on this period of her life, that she felt a little bit angry that women would be stepped on like that. So she found a lawyer who agreed with her and who took on her case for free, though he could barely afford to. They lost, as he told her they would. But then the American Civil Liberties Union joined the case and armed him with a brief written by a young professor and volunteer lawyer with the ACLU who was a woman and a Jew, couldn't find a paying job as a lawyer at the time. This was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they won. It was the first time the court applied the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to strike down a law that discriminated against anyone on the basis of sex. The decision was unanimous, and it opened up the door for other cases, many of which would be argued successfully by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then a paid lawyer, before she became a justice herself allowed women more control over their financial lives, their sexual lives, and so much more. And Sally Reed was back in Boise, in the home where her son was not, to figure out the rest of her life. She was named his executor. She held on to his clarinet. She gave half the money to her ex-husband. It seemed fair to her. It was the principle of the thing. This episode of The Memory Palace is written by me, Nate DeMeo, with research assistance from Eliza McGraw. Special thanks to Natalie Wexler. This show is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. From time to time, I like to tell you about new things happening with other folks here in the Radiotopia family. And I have a few for you right now. First up, for your ears, the heart continues to put out some of the most interesting, envelope-pushing, genre-expanding work that you're going to find anywhere in audio. And they've just launched a new fiction series called Appearances from the remarkable Sharon Mashee. It's a story of family and immigration and identity, and it is a genuine work of art. So check it out. Now for your eyes, 
My dear friend Rishi Haraway's Song Exploder TV show is out now on Netflix. It is all I wanted it to be when he started talking to me about it a couple of years ago. It is a tremendous achievement and a tremendous show, so go and watch it. And here is a plea that is also simply good advice from me to you. Watch all the episodes, both because it will help Rishi out and help him have the chance to make more of this wonderful show. But do it for yourself, because you're going to find that even episodes about musicians that you might think aren't your bag are going to be fascinating and delightful. And finally, for your bookshelf, for the people on your holiday gift-buying list, mask up and go to your local bookstore and buy the 99% Invisible City. From Roman Mars and Kurt Colstead, this is the perfect extension of Roman's Perfect Podcast. It is a field guide to the world around you that will have you seeing your town in a whole new way. So now that you are all sorted out, hop to it. And in the meantime, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you can find me at The Memory Palace. And you can always drop me a line at nate at thememorypalace.us. Talk to you again. Radiotopia.